host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we've got Cooper Zelnick on. He is the Chief Revenue Officer of Groups Recover Together, and we are going to do a deep dive into the data they collect and how they leverage that to secure value-based contracts in the MAT space. But before we do that, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. Groups Recover Together has created a really innovative treatment model. One of the fascinating things about groups is the way that they started and the way that they designed the whole business around that care model. So a lot of providers, by default, fall into fee-for-service arrangements because you need to provide the services that the payers are going to pay you for. Groups Recover Together start off as a private pay model like a lot of MAT providers did early on. And they realized that what they were doing was working. So they then made a decision and said, this works. We know this is valuable for patients, but it doesn't fall into standard fee-for-service arrangements that the payers currently have. So what do we need to do to be able to track our outcomes, deliver the patient care that we know patients deserve, and then get reimbursed for that? This required collaboration between groups and the payers, in particular, groups needed to prove that what they were doing was valuable enough to come up with an innovative care reimbursement structure and one that potentially was more costly than what they were doing in a fee-for-service arrangement. So groups really focused on its patient outcomes tracking and the results that it was able to deliver in order to prove to themselves, their patients, and the payers that their model was absolutely worth it. So it's a fascinating discussion with Cooper. I really appreciate his insights and letting us explore their model and what's worked for them. And I particularly love how they have approached value-based care. They're approaching it from an innovative care delivery standpoint, not just focused on reimbursement, which is a mistake I think a lot of providers make when they start thinking about value-based care. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Cooper, really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and groups? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Cooper Zelnick. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Groups Recover Together. We are the nation's largest value-based provider of outpatient addiction treatment. We serve folks predominantly with uh, opioid use disorders, although we serve across the substance use disorder spectrum. And our mission is helping folks you know, find, achieve, and maintain a life worth being sober for, specifically folks who are Medicaid beneficiaries in rural underserved communities across the United States. Um, And that's what we do. 
Uh, so you guys have, a, a, obviously, it's an MAT, somewhat of an MAT model, but you've started off really in the telehealth space. I know you have brick and mortar facilities as well. You want to talk a, just a little bit about that structure and how you guys look at telehealth versus brick and mortar or, or make a hybrid? Sure. We actually started brick and mortar. So when we were founded in, in New Hampshire in 2014, we were exclusively brick and mortar. Our, we opened our first office in Claremont, New Hampshire, our second in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And at that time, to the extent that we used telehealth at all, we used it for basically emergencies. So in some of our most rural Northeast offices, when providers couldn't come into the office because of snowstorms, we would deploy telehealth. So it's it's part of our DNA. It was not a big part of what we did transparently until COVID. With that said, you know, we were built for value. We were always oriented around getting paid for outcomes rather than for the provision of CPT codes. And when COVID hit, that structure allowed us to shift reasonably effortlessly to telehealth. And during, you know, the first two years of the pandemic, 100% of the services we delivered were telehealth. And, you know, I, I really credit kind of our orientation around value for allowing us to do that. Other providers who were reliant on um, specifically urine drug screening, which is a big source of fraud, waste, and abuse in our industry, were unable to make that shift. And we were able to. Um, so today, we operate a hybrid model. You know, we continue to open physical brick and mortar offices throughout the pandemic. We now have more than 150 of them. At the same time, we invested in what we call our digital platform that empowers members who are unable for whatever reason or who don't want to come into a physical office to engage with us virtually and receive care from their own homes. So that is the history. You know, the way that we think about it is very specifically in an outcomes-oriented framework. The first order of business in the pandemic was, can we continue to expand access? The second order of business was, can we continue to deliver the, the really powerful clinical outcomes for which we are known? And what we've observed in our data is key clinical indicators of efficacy, retention in treatment at six months, attendance at regularly scheduled clinical appointments, urine drug screen rates. All of those indicators were actually consistent from our historical brick and mortar data to our telehealth only data. Um, and we did a pretty robust analysis there. With that said, um, we you know believe that this is not one size fits all. We believe that there are folks who really want and need and benefit from exclusively in-person care. Similarly, there are folks who want and need and benefit from exclusively virtual care. And then there are people for whom a mix is the right answer. And today we are set up to deliver virtual, in-person and hybrid modalities across all of our markets with the asterisk, of course, being the regulatory landscape. What percentage of patients are pure telehealth versus uh, in-person? Still the majority. Um, you know, we are still coming out of COVID. You know, gosh, it's probably 70 to 75% are telehealth um, and 25, 30% are in-person. We're seeing that balance shift uh, further towards in-person a little bit. And I think where this shakes out is anyone's guess, but our assumption is ultimately we'll, we'll hover around 60, 40 in favor of telehealth. Okay. 
And so I, I think uh, sometimes a criticism that's layered at telehealth in general is, is feelings around it not being as effective, especially within the MAT space. Sometimes you'll hear concerns around diversion. And so you guys have a lot of data and tracking. Do you just want to talk to those those concerns from people and what you guys are seeing in your data? Yeah, I, I mean, I think your point is the right one. The, the, the most important thing here is to disaggregate data from stigma. I, I think this is a highly stigmatized population. And I think that historically, you know, if you think about methadone and the way that it dominated the MAT landscape, there's been this narrative of these are people who need to be controlled. We need accountability. We need uh, rules. And, you know, I, I think, frankly, that that isn't right and it isn't fair in a lot of cases. But to your point, for us, this is about the data. So the key benchmark of clinical efficacy in our industry is retention in treatment at six months. We compare folks who engaged with us exclusively in person to those who engaged exclusively via telehealth, and that rate of six-month retention, call it 68% uh, for Medicaid beneficiaries, 73% for commercial and Medicare, has been consistent irrespective of modality. So that is the primary thing that we are looking at. The same is true for urine drug screen positivity rates. The same is true for attendance. And, you know, I, I think it cuts both ways, right? Like we are believers in the power of community. We are believers in in-person. It's why we continue to invest in rural communities. And also there are folks for whom uh, receiving or engaging with in-person care has been a barrier that keeps them from getting well. Folks with transportation barriers folks who um, have mobility or accessibility issues. There are folks who really, really benefit from, from telehealth models. And to your point, it's very important that those are robust telehealth models, right? Those are video, not audio only. We still do pill counts to make sure that we're controlling for the risk of diversion. We still require people to use home pharmacies. Um, th those are really important parts of a telehealth model to drive engagement and, yes, of course, accountability to a degree. But our belief is that telehealth can be highly effective. Um, you just got to do it right. So let's explore some of those in, in detail a bit. So retention is a big one for MAT providers. And a challenge for a lot of MAT providers is that their patient population tends to disappear and come back. Maybe they go to a different provider, maybe they end up in jail, maybe they just move and lose contact. Uh, how are you following patients and do you feel that you have a better ability to stay connected to them than maybe other providers in the space? And if so, why? Yeah, so I, I think we do. I mean, the national average rate of six-month retention in our industry is 25% for Medicaid beneficiaries. Ours is 68%. Um, so period, full stop. Like, we we are following the data. We believe in it. Uh, I, think, I think actually part of it has to do with how we measure. So this industry and the, the measurement or tracking of outcomes is rife with exclusion criteria. It is standard practice for providers to say, if someone is reincarcerated, that person is taken out of the denominator and does not count against our retention numbers. If someone moves out of state, not our fault. If someone goes to a higher level of care, not our fault. If someone uh, loses insurance coverage, not our fault. You know, by contrast, we view all of those negative outcomes as our fault. We do not offer any exclusion criteria. We publish our data. We share it back with every single payer with whom we're contracted. 
And I think that structurally creates an incentive for us to do the work required to mitigate some of the challenges. So when someone loses coverage, we have an entire team that's helping them navigate re-enrollment, um, which is specifically important today given Medicaid redetermination. If someone is at risk of being reincarcerated, we will engage with the criminal justice system. If someone is reincarcerated, we will stick with them and offer transitional care and reentry planning um, through many of our criminal justice partnerships. So again, I would say like the primary reason that our outcomes are different and better is because we are on the hook for delivering and we are structurally and financially incentivized to do the work that often falls outside of the fee schedule and thus is ignored by, by many providers. So this is one of the really interesting reasons that I want to talk to you guys is it is fascinating. The data that you guys are getting is phenomenal. And you are also uh, having a stronger, like you said, commitment to looking at all patients and not having exclusionary criteria in there. So sounds like you're setting up the organization to incentivize yourselves to support a lot of these goals that, like you said, are outside the traditional peace structure. What else specifically do you think is allowing for you to have those higher rates? I mean, 60% is almost you know, two and a half times higher than the average provider. Is it just these this ability to have more of almost wraparound services? What do you think really allows you to get those numbers? Yeah, so aside from the structural, I I believe that it is uh, cultural, you know, and, and that is a soft and squishy answer. But what we do is we open physical locations in the hardest hit, most rural communities. We staff those locations with licensed, empathetic, wonderful providers who are local to the communities that they serve. We empower them to spend most of their time doing direct patient-facing care rather than terrible EMR documentation. And we provide transparency on the impact of their work through outcomes that we not only hold ourselves accountable to, but share with the entire organization. And this is not rocket science. Like we, our innovation to the extent that we have innovated has to do with delivering really high quality care at scale. We have not invented new modalities for treating substance use disorder. The medications for opioid use disorder we prescribe are no different from the medications prescribed by any other physician or nurse practitioner. The, the innovation here is a, a culture of empathy, of accountability to our members and, and getting the work done and, and being really transparent with ourselves when we don't. So it, it's a weird answer, but it, it happens to be the truth. And how often are patients interacting with staff? So you mentioned licensed therapists, for example, and a lot of MAT providers, the patients might see a therapist once a month, you know, so that interaction is fairly limited. So how often are they seeing them? And maybe talk to if there's additional staff like caseworkers or their primary care physician, you know, who are they talking to and, and how often? Yeah. So, so as the name suggests, the backbone of our model is group therapy. We ask that our members engage with at least one hour of group therapy each and every week. Uh, to your point, that is different. Counseling is often not required. Uh, the counseling that is delivered across this industry is often drop-in. Uh, it's inconsistent. You know, by contrast, we ask our folks to commit to the same day, same time, same group of eight to 10 peers, and same licensed clinician each and every week. 
that really matters when it comes to building community and creating an environment conducive to recovery. You know, additionally, folks engage with their physician or provider on a monthly basis. We have what we call a recovery support services team that includes care navigators, case managers, and certified peers. Those folks engage with our members weekly, um, both in real time in the group setting and asynchronously through technology. And it is definitely the case that all of those encounters um, help members stay engaged. I think more than that, it is the case that our members hold each other accountable. And when you sit in on one of our group therapy sessions, when it's really working, the thing that surprises most observers is our clinical team has a really light touch. Their job is to foster community in, in to a significant degree. And when they get that right, folks hold each other up and you see people with common problems finding common solutions, which is how recovery works. I love the fact that you guys are able to get people connected into a group setting because that's a big challenge for a lot of MAT providers. Many have tried to start IOP programs. They've started to even just standard outpatient in the group setting. And the attendance rates is generally less than 10%. It's a very small number. So you're saying that you're actually able to get the majority of patients attending. I mean, do you know what number? Is it all patients or what percentage of patients actually tend, attend a weekly session? About 86.5-87% of our population attends each and every week. So that's huge. And then again, why? Why do you think that you have such a high attendance rate? Obviously, you've got that culture, you've got that community. But I would say the barrier for a lot of providers is that initial connection, right? Mm -hmm. So establishing culture and community that keeps you there, but it's hard to, to get them there in the first place. So what do you think you guys have in place that helps them make that initial connection so that they can get involved in your culture and your community? Yeah, so I mean, the way that I would answer that is think about the typical patient journey for a methadone clinic, and then think about what we do. At a methadone clinic, you walk in, you wait in line, often outside in the parking lot, you are called by a number, you go into the bathroom, there is a camera or a person watching you provide a urine drug screen sample, you stick your hand through bars or bulletproof glass, you drink the methadone as they watch, you get your mouth checked to make sure you swallow it, you walk out and you do it again at 4 a.m. the next morning. That's, that is industry standard. By contrast, you know, when someone calls our call center, which is the first step to becoming a member, we call our patients members, they are talking to someone with lived experience. That person is just asking them what's going on with them and making sure they're a fit for what we do. You then have a biopsychosocial evaluation with a licensed clinician who gets it, who has all the time you need to learn about your history and understand your treatment goals. And then from the very first time you walk into one of our offices for a group therapy session or log on to our digital platform for a virtual group therapy session, you are with eight to 10 folks who are in various stages of their recovery journey, who are giving you hope. And you know, you can you can walk in and because our, our group therapy sessions are localized, they're around, they're built around the geographies in which we operate, you might see a high school classmate, you might see your former drug dealer, you might see your former colleague. And these are folks who you know, who you've used with who maybe you've been in jail or prison with, 
And here they are sober. And maybe they're two weeks sober, maybe they're two months sober, maybe they're two years sober. But these are folks who have found a life worth living. And that is more powerful than anything else. And if we can deliver that at the first group therapy session, when folks are skeptical, when they're really just coming in because it is a requirement of our program, then they come back. That's that's our experience. Got it. And so it is a requirement to attend that first session, for example. So you're saying, look, it is to our program, you know, we're provide the prescriptions, provide the services, but you have to be here at X time next week. That's right. And and to be clear, X time is the convenient time. We have evenings, we have options for folks working first, second, and third shift. We have every day of the week. Um, but so, so we work around folks and we, of course, have makeup groups for folks who have unexpected things come up, but it is our expectation that you engage with therapy. And, and the sole reason for that is because it is our experience that engaging with group therapy drives retention and saves lives. So I think that's also one of the things I really like about your model is you have a, a variety of offerings for patients to come in in terms of a therapy setting. So oftentimes when you're looking at an MAT provider or even standard outpatient, you know, there's only maybe two options throughout the week and it can be very hard for people to make those options work. And as you said, a lot of people are even on third shift. And so you've got to be flexible. So you have a lot of options available. And then can you maybe give a little bit of background on how many options are available for a community? And I think before you mentioned to me that you said there was also different focuses of the group. So it's not standard group. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. So for, first, just to your question about options, it, it's actually highly specific to individuals and communities. We do routine member surveys. We adjust our group schedules consistently to meet the needs of folks. And, you know, it's our experience that the primary barrier to attendance isn't apathy or disinterest it is structural challenges, right? So if we are operating in a community where there is one large employer and that employer has very specific shift times, we adjust to get around that. And and that is a big part of what we do in terms of the actual format of the group. So we have an evidence-based curriculum. It is derived from all sorts of evidence-based tools, seeking safety, harm reduction, uh, elements of 12-step philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the key difference is that our clinical team is empowered to, for lack of a better way to put it, go off script. If if they're planning to talk about, um, you know, getting a job or updating your resume in sobriety and someone walks in and that person had a slip or a relapse the night before, the focus of that group instantly changes and it becomes about coping skills. It becomes about support. It becomes about how to do things differently. And that makes it feel real to folks, right? It doesn't feel like they're listening to a pre-recorded lecture. It feels like what it is, which is a community that's responsive to folks in their time of need. And that's a, that's a really, really big part of what we do. Sure. I mean, one of the most important criteria for evidence-based care is aligning with patient goals. Uh, Indeed. It's actually, it's actually something that's missed in a lot of programs, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So you've got these different group structures. And so like, let's say you're taking a small rural community like Lebanon, New Hampshire. I mean, how many groups would be available? And by groups, I mean, different times and different days would be available per week to members. 
You know, it more actually depends on the census of the office. I would say in a small community like Lebanon, New Hampshire, there are probably anywhere between 10 and 20 group times available per week. Now, just to go back to where we started, one of the benefits of telehealth is if there is someone who, for whatever reason, can't make any of the times offered in Lebanon, they could join a group virtually in Rochester, or they could join a group virtually in Nashua. And as a result, we can kind of expand and look at the hundreds of group times available across a state and slot someone into the most convenient offering. That makes sense. And then do the patients or the members get any individual sessions or is it always group? Uh, we offer individual. It is not a requirement of what we do. About 20% of our members engage with individual sessions on a monthly basis. 20% members. Okay. And then obviously you're the chief revenue officer. So I guess that works from a scalability standpoint, right? Because you've just got one therapist providing 20 sessions during the day. Do you have challenges though from a staffing end? So if you've got someone that's doing third shift or you've got to have, you know, early morning or late night sessions, uh, how is that working from a staffing and a revenue standpoint? Do you end up having to have more staff than a regular provider? I think, so I guess what I would say is staffing is one of the primary challenges in our industry. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One, the pace of licensing has not kept up with the uptick in need or the pace of the epidemic. So it takes a long time to become a licensed clinician and it is really challenging. And there is, you know, need is growing more quickly than staff capacity. That's true in every state in the union. At the same time, uh, this is a field that suffers from extraordinarily high burnout and turnover. I think the reasons for that are again, structural, right? Direct patient care time is massively eclipsed by documentation time, which is dispiriting. Outcomes are not transparent and not good, which is demoralizing. And a lot of folks leave the field. So the primary way we deal with this is by creating an environment that folks really want to work in and where they feel like they can have an impact, an impact that's measured and transparent and shared with them, right? Now, beyond that, we, of course, pay competitively you know, we want the absolute best people in this field. We think we have the absolute best people in this field and all of that. Yes, it's costly, but like the, the observation I would have is that the one of the factors most closely correlated with member retention is clinician retention. So if you do right by your team, you're going to do right by your members. It's It's an investment we make every day of the week. Yeah, it's a really solid observation and something that I think we don't think about enough as a field, because when you see clinicians bouncing around, it's very, very frustrating to patients. I mean, I just to close oh, yeah. some of my deepest, darkest secrets to Sally two weeks ago, and now I've got Tom coming in. I don't want to do that again. You know, it's a very big challenge, I think, for patients. Correct. And it affects member retention. It affects other staff retention. And so I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that we don't look at enough. So You've got this really great group structure and you have high attendance rates. And then you mentioned it's another data point that you actually have uh, really strong. So I, I asked about diversion in the beginning. You gave me a statistic that you said 95% of patients are abstinent from illicit substances. And that was a surprising statistic to me because it's usually like half maybe at uh, an MET provider. And most of the time, a lot of MET providers will have a, 
a lack of opioids showing up on the urine screens, but they'll still have other other drugs that they're using. So curious about one, when you kind of hit that 95, is that you know after a month? Is that after three months? And then two, it just seems really high. So how do you think you're able to achieve that level of success? Yeah. So so first, just to your question, you know, we measure all substances. We do a full, you know, 13 test panel. And my to, to your question about when does that rate, that positivity rate fall below 5%, it is typically in month two. Um, so it takes a little bit of time. We operate a harm reduction model. We don't kick folks out, especially when they're early in treatment for slipping up or using. This is, these are moments when we build our culture. And then I think your point about illicit opioids versus illicit substances is well taken. We have been able to demonstrate that rate of urine drug screen um, negativity across all drug classes. So amphetamines fall below that 5% positivity rate in month three. Benzodiazepines fall below it in month one. Cocaine falls below it in month one. And we look at it on a drug class basis. I think the only thing I would say here is the place that we do not have as significant an impact is in marijuana or THC positivity rates. Um, you know, it starts at intake, about half of folks are showing up positive for marijuana or THC, that drops to about 30%. Um, and yeah, I, so so that's how we look at it. And And I think, again, the why of it is we create relationships with folks where they are comfortable telling us what they are doing. And once you don't have to lie about what you're doing, it's really, 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 really easy comparatively to change your behavior. By contrast, you know, there are a lot of programs that that maintain a highly punitive approach, which is totally counterproductive. I completely agree. I think there's something I often bring up when I'm observing therapy sessions is if you want to build therapeutic alliance and a foundation of trust and honesty within your group or with your patients, you have to allow them to speak about what's on their mind and what they're thinking, including use. You know, even if you are running an abstinence-based program where you really want them to get to uh, you know, absolute sobriety, if you're not allowing patients to talk about their their cravings, their feelings, their desires, you're, you're setting up you're not setting up the foundation to to have honesty and trust, which is critical to the therapeutic alliance. And as all, we all know, the therapeutic alliance drives a lot of outcomes. You know, really appreciate you sharing that point. Yeah, of course. Do you guys include alcohol in those screens? We do, yes. And our results for alcohol are pretty similar to all other classes of substances. Okay. All right. So then moving toward the revenue side, you mentioned earlier on that a lot of providers actually make their revenue on urine screens, which is accurate. Yeah. Uh, even if they're not abusing it, it does tend to be one of the few things that are a revenue driver. And the reason for that with MAT is, again, you, you're not making a whole ton on you know your, your methadone dose or your Suboxone prescription. Um, if anything, depending on, you know, if you're even doing that all in-house and then behavioral therapy sessions are, like I said, sometimes once a month. And so there's no revenue there. So the only real revenue comes from the urine screens. So you guys are not as reliant on that because you actually have more of a value-based care model. So you just want to talk a little bit about the revenue side of things and how you've been able to move away from a reliance on urine screens as a, a revenue driver? Sure. So as a, as a point of clarification, we have never earned a single dollar of revenue 
from definitive urine drug screening, and we never will. And when we were founded, we faced this really, really difficult moment where we looked at the same fee schedule everyone else looked at. We observed the dynamics that you just described, and we realized that we could either pursue the path of definitive urine drug screening, uh, which frankly, I, I think is not aligned with what patients want or need, or we could pursue a different way. And what we chose to do was seek reimbursement tied directly to our clinical outcomes. That began for us by pursuing uh, case rate bundles with downside risk. You know, today, 95 or 96% of our revenue is derived from value-based or bundled agreements. It is critical to what we do. And it's the, the way that I think about it fundamentally is a value-based contract to us is any reimbursement methodology that empowers us to deliver the care that works rather than maximize against a fee schedule. We, of course, have you know minimum service requirements. We got to show up. We got to drive engagement. But fundamentally, this is about this is about driving engagement rather than delivering CPT codes. And, you know, in, in most of our agreements today, we are on the hook for retention, whether that is a base rate and a bonus that we earn when patients are retained, or whether that's a case rate with massive downside risk. We routinely say, if we can't hit the retention threshold we need to hit, we will give you 75% of your money back. And we, uh, we stand by that. A lot of people are really interested in value-based care arrangements these days. So can we talk a little bit about some of those specifics? So you mentioned case rates. So I assume you're just getting a, a rate for that member for a 12-month period. And then I'd assume you also have some that are per member per month. You just want to talk about the general structure a little bit? Sure. So our, our proposed or sort of preferred structure is a per-engaged member per month case rate with downside risk. We, in any given month, have to achieve what we call our minimum service requirements or our minimum engagement threshold. If we achieve it, we bill. If we fail to achieve it, we bill zero. So that's, that is the mechanism that keeps us on the hook for driving retention. Rather than saying in a 12-month case rate, for example, well, you need to do six things in 12 months. And if you do all those things in month one, you don't have to do anything. So we hold ourselves accountable to driving engagement on a monthly basis. And then we look back every six months. So at the six month mark, we will look at a cohort's performance from a retention perspective. We'll look at their performance from an abstinence and attendance perspective. And we will determine whether that cohort was sufficiently engaged to merit you know, incremental reimbursement or a bonus payment or whatever. And then you know, as that cohort of members continues to mature, for lack of a better word, we look back at, you know, total cost of care, right? We look at primary care engagement. We look at reductions in readmission. We look at reductions in ED or inpatient utilization. And ultimately, we do look at the total cost of physical, behavioral, and, and our expend. And it is our job to bring that number down inclusive of our rate. And we do. Let's dig into that. Can you clarify a couple of points on that? So sure. you are looking for per member, per month case rates based on engagement. That's your preferred contract method. Is that accurate? That is that is our most common contract method. So, you know, we have the ability to take full, you know, capitated risk. 
we have the ability to be a vendor. We have the ability to do all sorts of things. But given the the population we serve and the plans we partner with, our job is um, our our job is to meet the health system and the payers where they are. And what I would observe is like a per engaged member per month case rate is often the best answer from an implementation perspective. Okay, and so this is most common around the engaged member. And so that would be a minimum number of services, I'm assuming they have to attend X amount of groups, they have to- That's right. Okay, all right. And then you mentioned downside risks. So one of your downside risks is if they don't have the engagement rates that you're agreeing to, you potentially bill zero dollars, are there any other downside risks that you guys look at that are, are somewhat common in your contracts? Yeah. So the primary downside risk provision in our contracts is tied to six-month retention. So what we will say um, in plain English in these contracts is, you know, the national average rate of six-month retention is 25%, or the baseline in your claims feed, payer X, is 23% or 28%. If we fall below that national average, we will give you back 75 or 90% of your money. Or if we are more than double that national average, we will earn X bonus. Um, and, and in doing that, we also publish our retention methodology. We write it into our contracts. In doing that, we are taking you know, what I would describe as a clinical proxy for cost, and we are holding ourselves economically accountable to it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So then that flows in the next question around total cost of care and reduction for payers. How are you done? But you mentioned physical care costs, you mentioned ER visits, connection to a physician, et cetera. Are you getting that data from the payers or how are you tracking that total cost of care component? Yeah, so we get that data from the payers, right? The things we can track internally are our clinical outcomes. Um, but to understand, you know, all of the paid claims feed, we do need to work with the payers and it's a big part of what we do. That's fascinating. What have you seen, or I'm not sure if this would kind of fit into your role as a chief revenue officer, but have you been able to identify anything as an organization that is helping reduce those total costs of care? Like, is it attendance? Is it specific therapists that people seem to be working with? You know, is there a frequency per week that people come? Anything that you've identified that has resulted in that reduction in total cost of care? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel a little bit like a broken record, so I apologize. But what we have observed in our data is there is a direct correlation between retention in treatment and reductions in total cost of care. If you can retain a member for greater than 180 days, you can drive down total cost of care. If you can't, you won't. And so, so yes, the way I would think about group therapy attendance is as a leading indicator for retention. The way I would think about a really great and stable clinical team is as a leading indicator for attendance. So it all links together, but fundamentally, and this has been validated not only in our data, but also in you know industry-wide published research that has nothing to do with us, the key benchmark for clinical efficacy is retention, and the primary predictor of reductions in cost is retention. Which, by the way, is like why it's such a shame that uh, that our industry as a whole isn't able to deliver powerful rates of retention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great point, and you're right. And even Nita came out with a study. I think Volko ran it, where she was showing for OUD in particular, they need 12 months connected to achieve. I think it was like an 80 percent chance of recovery. But, you know, until you hit that 12-month mark, much, much harder to achieve stable 
rates, which that's right. Makes sense, right? Is kind of seems like common sense, but our challenge is the field. And what I admire about MAT programs in general and what you guys are doing is by keeping patients connected to care. And as I always point out, that doesn't mean residential. It doesn't mean intensive outpatient. Those are proper levels of care for different levels of severity. But keeping people connected to care can just be, you know, one or two touch points a week that allow people to have the support that they need to eventually sustain their recovery because it's it's a long game. You know, it's not something you can just do in, in 30 days. That's right. That's right. All right. So going back to the value-based care contracts, just questions on logistics and how that originally came about. It sounds like you went in with the intention to build these. The challenge a lot of providers have is they don't know where to start. The payers don't really have templates or anything like that that's built out for value-based care contracts. So how did you go about that? Did you guys reach out to the payers and have conversations? Did you create a template and then suggest it and that was adopted? You know, what was that conversation like? Yeah, the, the way that we actually started was, and keep in mind, you know, this was a long time ago. This was 2014. This was New Hampshire. This was pre-ACA or Medicaid expansion. And we were attempting to serve a largely uninsured population. The way we started was with a clinical model. And when I talk to other providers who want to deliver value-based care and then get reimbursed in that way, the first question I pose is, what is the clinical model that drives value for patients and ideally that reduces cost for payers? So, And that's where we began we realized that retention mattered. We realized that the way to serve this population was to combine rapid access with you know, direct community engagement, regular group therapy, and wraparound services. And that's where we started. We started with a clinical model. From there, we went to clinical outcomes. How do we track the impact of our work internally? Not about claims data, not about total cost of care, but how do we understand that this is working? And once we, and, and by the way, those were both in an out-of-pocket, you know, direct patient pay context. Yeah. Once we figured that out, once we had a model that worked and we had clinical outcomes to show for it, and by the way, we had statistically significant sample set of data, of these folks paying us out of pocket, we went to the payers and said, we were actually pretty naive. We said, hey, this is what we're doing. It's working really well. Will you pay us for it? And they, of course, said, yeah, just here's our fee schedule. And we said, oh, no, uh, the thing we do, it's not on the fee schedule. Yeah. And that was the moment of choice. That was where we realized we either had to fight for the clinical model we believed in, or we had to, we would have to, you know, rebuild our clinical model to align with a fee schedule that I, I think, especially in the case of substance use disorder outpatient, gets it wrong. And we stood by our work, we stood by what we learned, we stood by our clinical outcomes, and we asked the payers to pay us for what we were doing. And we got really lucky early on, there were a few payers that believed in that, that gave us a shot, specifically Optum. And from there, we developed a template that became fairly standardized that we used. But to, to answer your question, you know, this, this to me is less about, I want better rates, less about, I want value-based care for value-based care's sake. If, there, if, if you have a clinical model that drives real value for patients, that drives value for payers, if it's on the fee schedule, take the fee schedule. And if it's not, argue for why it needs to be. And that's, that's my formula for pursuing value-based care. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things that providers often don't get with value-based care. Value-based care is not because it's what the payers are starting to look at. It's not because you think you can make a more stable revenue model. The success is exactly that logic process that you guys followed. You said, we see that attendance and connection to care is driving positive outcomes. So how do we improve attendance, connection, and engagement in care? We need X, Y, Z, right? These groups, this kind of culture, this kind of case management, whatever it is. And then you say, okay, well now how do we get paid for that? That's a value-based care model. And that's what the payers are actually looking for too, right? They're not looking for that's you right. for service model and just move it around and put some risk in place and say, okay, let's do a value-based care contract. They're saying, hey, what are things that we can't pay for with CBT codes, but we know, or you can prove to us that you know- <laughs> That they work. That they work. Yeah, because I, I think, and this is my primary complaint, everyone says, well, we want a value-based care contract. And the payer says, okay, what are you thinking? They say, well, I want 100% of fee-for-service and I want 3% of shared savings and maybe I'll take some downside risk in year three. Right. And uh, I, I, I don't see how that drives value for anyone, right? I think I think said another way, we tend to conflate fee for service with economics we don't like. Fee for service is a totally fine modality, provided there are economics we like as a provider. And you know, when when often when there are not economics that providers like, they say, well, fee for service is broken and we need value based care. But I, I think the question to ask is like. How does this model deliver value for all stakeholders? That's exactly it. It's it's so interesting because that then frames building stronger clinical programs. And yeah, I get it. There's not a lot of data in the field. I think people have struggled with that lack of data. And so we're just starting to get it. But they'll come to a payer and they'll say, okay, well, we have a bunch of PhDs on staff or we're all master's licensed clinicians. And so we should be paid more for that. And the payer is going to come back and say, we don't see improvement in the data because of that. That's right. To the academic research, the research is also the same based on levels of experience and certain levels of certifications. There has not been a documented improvement in patient outcomes. And so you're looking at it wrong, right? You want to say what drives patient outcomes? That's what we want to get reimbursed for and then work backwards. That's right. A little small thing on the value-based care context I did want to touch on, which is very related to that, is I think you mentioned contingency management in one of our conversations. And so contingency management, if, if people aren't familiar with it, just means uh, there's an incentivization structure in place for people to achieve positive outcomes or achieve goals. And it's very hard to get reimbursed for in a fee-for-service arrangement. So is this something that you guys have been able to implement? And then that'd be connected to this whole idea, right? What works and then how do we get reimbursed for it? We have, yeah. And and you said it exactly right. We, unlike other providers, because we are incentivized to drive retention and do what works, the there are no structural or reimbursement barriers to us delivering contingency management. You know, the other challenge historically was um, somewhat inconsistent OIG guidance. I think that's largely yeah. been clarified. And our experience is that behavioral incentives or rewards at the individual and the group level really, really, really do drive outcomes. We have done a ton of testing. We've actually learned some pretty interesting things that I think maybe the industry is not thinking of yet, specifically the power of group-based rewards. And, you know, we're, we're doing it and it's working. And the, the example I would give you, which is really fun, is so we piloted direct cash um, or cash equivalent 
rewards in contingency management. We also piloted, as I mentioned, group-based rewards. And the group-based rewards were things like, if every member of the group attends, then the group together gets this reward. And the most popular reward that groups chose together was the ability to donate money to a 501c3 that they all agreed upon. Huh. And I think that goes to show the power of community, right? Like we have this we have this whole theory of like, well, people are going to do things that are in their best interest. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that people are going to do things that are in each other's best interest and that if you can get folks oriented in that way, you can you can you can really make a, an enormous impact and and you know, that's a key obviously tenet of most recovery philosophies, right? Helping others, giving back engaging with the community and it's a big big part of what we do with groups yeah oh man that is so interesting i would have never guessed that you know in my life that's that's fascinating just real quick couple things for people's background that are listening so uh, again if no one's familiar contingency management incentivizing patients for for certain goals or tasks that they're achieving and this is actually one of the most strongly documented uh, size effects in the research in terms of what has positive effects for SUD. So contingency management, really valuable, just hard to implement due to a reimbursement structure. And then you mentioned the OIG, which is the office of the inspector general. And there was extensive confusion, especially around Medicaid reimbursement and SAMHSA grants for a long time, saying that you couldn't use that kind of funding for, for contingency management. I, I would be less optimistic if it's been so clarified. Uh, there's definitely been rulings. <laughs> but I don't know That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Disseminated that is and, and everything. But yeah, you're right. It absolutely moving in the right direction. I think you'd easily make a case for the OIG, you know, being comfortable with it for sure. Uh, so anything else? I mean, we covered a whole lot on uh, this session and I love the data. I love the, the innovations and the approaches and the contracts and, and really identifying what's working for patients. Is there anything else that you've done at groups that you really want to share that you think would be helpful for other providers? I think that, you know, that the primary advice that our experience has to offer is first and foremost, invest in the folks you serve, invest in your patients. And if you, if you are really thoughtful about what drive out drives outcomes for that population, you're on the right track. Secondarily, invest in the folks who are delivering this care in your organizations, in your clinicians, keep them happy, keep them engaged. And third, you know, invest in the communities in which you serve. And if you do all that, then developing strong trust-based relationships with payer partners goes from this terrifying black box to something that's actually pretty straightforward and manageable. And, you know, we... I don't think we're the smartest people out there. I don't think we are the most special provider out there. But I think if there's one thing we've gotten right, it's we've been really, really thoughtful about delivering value to our stakeholders and then structuring the economics of our business and the clinical model of our business in such a way that those ends are compatible rather than incompatible. And, you know, that, that's been our experience. I, the only other thing I would say is, you know, we are living in a world where the death toll from the substance use disorder epidemic continues to climb, where newspaper articles and headlines speak to the just enormous demoralization of the disease burden and of the communities impacted by the disease. And I would offer a message of hope. You know, recovery is possible. It's possible on an individual level. 
it's possible on a community level, it works. And, um, and you know, for, for folks who are providing this care or thinking about getting into the field and providing it, do it, we need you. And most of all, for, for individuals who are struggling and deciding whether it's worth it to reach out and get some help, it is. So that's that's my message. Thank you for sharing all of that. It really sounds like you guys are doing it right and it's been proven by the outcomes that you're delivering. You also mentioned actually expansion there uh, and it's something kind of going back to the beginning, you mentioned you started off in very rural areas, but it sounds like that's actually still part of your strategy. So the, the closest parallel, which isn't really a parallel, might be oceans, you know, expanding into rural areas in the mental health space. Is that specifically part of the growth strategy? Are you guys going to stay really rural or are you trying to expand into standard metropolitan areas as well? You know, our, our job is to go where the need is. And we look at overall need. We look at unmet need. We have offices in large urban communities. We have offices in small rural communities. You know, we we have proven that we can deliver these outcomes and deliver this model across the spectrum. But rural is definitely a part of our DNA. It's where a lot of the unmet need is. And, you know, if you think about, I'll just use Maine as an example. It's It's one of our early states. We have an office in Portland, which is the largest city in the state. We also have an office in Machias, which is a town I don't think anyone's heard of. It has 2,500 residents. And those offices both are really successful and both have an impact on their community. So it is, I think, tempting to go to the largest population centers and skip everywhere else. It is not our experience that that's the way to build a thriving community. We're really, really, really committed to rural in every new state we go into, and we are going into a lot of new states. And does that work out for you from a cost structure standpoint? So if you go into that community with 2,500 people in it, you know, I mean, is that is that a revenue driver or is that just part of an overall plan where actually the revenue comes from a little bit larger centers? No, I mean, our, our economic model is built such that we can have a thriving business if a physical location has between 95 and 125 active members. Um and, you know, so so to go and succeed in a community of 2,500 people requires a certain SUD prevalence, which is my point about unmet need. But provided the prevalence and the need is there, we can absolutely be sustainable and contribution large and positive in very small rural communities. Um, that was a core part of how we built our economic model from the very beginning. And and it's it's very, very important to how we work. Sure. And then again, you guys are, are have better reimbursements than a traditional MAT provider because of the outcomes you deliver, because of the contracts you have in place. So maybe it's a little bit easier for you to go, but very smart strategically to be able to build that, serve those communities in a way that's sustainable rather than being a loss leader just because you've structured that business in, in a way that fits that model. That's right. That's right. I, I Again, like I'm such a believer economic incentives need to align with organizational goals and our mission. And if we were in a situation where serving rural communities were a loss leader, it would just take, you know, a recession to get us out of those communities. That is not right. how we operate. We make sure that we can do it sustainably and we are in it for the long haul. Yeah, super smart. All right. Uh, so if someone wants to contact you or reach out to groups, what would be the best way to do that? Uh Feel free to reach out to me directly. I cannot solve all problems, but <laughs> I can solve some of them. I am cooper at joingroups.com. Feel free to visit our website, joingroups.com. 
We have a form submission area. Uh, we have a 24-hour call center. You're welcome to call that. And you're also welcome to reach out to press at joingroups.com with inquiries. Well, thank you again so much for your time and all the information. Really appreciate it. And for all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me.